going deep. I feel like Kalo on the Miami Heat. The words I speak off this sheet are like a three-peat. I don't just hop on a track. I bring running cleats. I'm a player for real, more than an athlete. Let my mama tell it. Could have ran for the Senate. Instead, I penned it for Donovan Bennett. I'm cemented. This a deep dive. In your headphones or a long drive. Up close and personal, just like you courtside. They ain't no out of bounds here. No offsides. We going live in one, two, three, four, five. You are now tuned in to Going Deep with Donovan Bennett. Thanks so much, Capital. That's right. It is going deep. And today we are going deep on all things NFL. We are down to the final four as we've got the AFC championship game and the NFC championship game giving us our potential juicy matchup in Las Vegas in the Super Bowl. I love this time of year because these are the teams that actually deserve to be here. Real clean football, real good football. Specifically, the storylines is what I love. And no Better ones than what we have in the AFC where you've got, for me, the two best quarterbacks in the league, Lamar Jackson, who's going to be the MVP winning that award for the second time, doing it entirely different. First time he won it essentially with his legs. This time he won it almost exclusively throwing from the pocket. And Patrick Mahomes, also a two-time MVP, but also a two-time Super Bowl MVP and champion, which is the difference between them. Lamar Jackson gets a chance to go through Patrick Mahomes to the Super Bowl this year, but can he? Willie, it's so fascinating because the Chiefs are road underdogs in this game, and they are the defending champions with the best player in the sport on their team. Tough to make sense of, but... When you see how good the Ravens have been throughout the regular season in all phases, offense, defense, special teams, you kind of get it. So we're going to break down that matchup before the break, and then afterwards we'll talk NFC. But let's start with the champs. Let's give some respect to Chief Kingdom. Let's holler at Joshua Briscoe, who is a friend of the show, does Chiefs post game on Sports Radio 810 in market, hear him all the time with the Arrowhead Report, doing a great job for the KC Sports Network. And whenever we talk to him, we have a lot of fun, and he does a great job for us. Let's go deep on the Kansas City Chiefs with Joshua Briscoe. So, Joshua, I hope and assume, given the Chiefs' history, you didn't make early offseason plans because, once again, they're in the AFC Championship, although it's not the Arrowhead Invitational. They're on the road, but... I'm not surprised, even though this is probably the worst offense they've had in the Mahomes era. I feel like this is LeBron, you know, dragging you know some really bad Cavs teams uh, to the final. It, but really, the thing that stuck out to me in seeing them get through Buffalo again was the amount of faith and trust Mahomes had in multiple players who, quite frankly, maybe I wouldn't have had the same amount of faith and trust in. What do you make of the way they've gotten back to this game? I, I think all your analysis there is, is pretty strong. And, yeah, I certainly try to keep my uh, late Januarys and early Februarys open at this point because this is just how it goes now. And, and so, I mean, it is on its face just insane to be able to say, like, yeah, this is the worst of these six teams that Patrick Mahomes has taken to an AFC championship game. It, it's unprecedented in, you know, NFL history, but especially Chiefs history, it's, it's remarkable. But to your point about what's gotten them there this season and why you can't be totally surprised to see Patrick Mahomes in the place that he gets to literally every single year that he's been a starter in the NFL, 
I, I think we saw two things with kind of the psyche of the offense. One that you mentioned there, which is that Mahomes is going to continue to rise and fire to guys like Marquez Valdez-Scantling, who had an atrocious regular season. And then two big plays, a couple of tough catches, and all of a sudden he gets his playoff moment again this year. They're going to need more of that against Baltimore. You, you saw like one or two of those plays from guys other than kind of the big three of the offense around Mahomes back against the Dolphins in the first round. Then against the Bills, you saw it with MVS and, uh, and then a lot of, of Mahomes doing Mahomes things. Against Baltimore, they're going to need the supporting cast to keep stepping up. But I, I kind of like the LeBron analogy. Uh, it's like if those LeBron teams just played immaculate defense, but nobody else could shoot. That's, that's kind of what this regular season felt like. It's nice to see, and kind of the other side of the psyche here, that this, this offense seems like it has a little bit of its inevitability back, of, of that character of Patrick Mahomes that you can never quite count out because there's always a chance he has another gear. It didn't show up as often this regular season. Now we saw it against Buffalo, and it feels like it's back. Yeah, it's like Noah Gray. Can you be Matthew Deladova? That's all I need right. you to do. <laughs> but, but exactly I think, right. I think even in terms of you know uh, formation personnel, we saw a shift. We saw a lot of you know three tight ends on the field and, and finding you know people that you can trust. But but it wasn't totally clean. Um, at, at what point? It, are you and Casey going to have the intervention with Andy Reid and, and say, in short yardage goal line, can we not have the trick wet play to McCall Hardman or Kadarius Tony? Like, can we just throw that out of the Denny's menu card play sheet that you have? It, uh, it felt like we were having a breakthrough earlier this year. It really did. It felt like kind of late season, the running game had gotten really solid with Pacheco coming back and the offensive line kind of hitting the stride. The Chiefs have actually been very good running the power stuff as an offense, just kind of your standard run power. That's a place they've actually way overachieved from, from places in previous years. And then, yeah, you get to the red zone, and now all of a sudden you've got McCall Harden run, run, running a, a jet sweep motion that all of a sudden – Here's the here's where I'm of two minds. Of course, all of a sudden it turns into the worst play of the game, the kind of thing that can keep teams out of out of AFC Championship games, out of Super Bowls, that can cut your season short. It's an atrocious play. It's also atrocious for McCole Hardman on first down to be stretching for the end zone. You're an inch out, dude. It would have been second and goal from the inch line. So I part of me wants to have that intervention with Andy Reid about especially the really tricky stuff down there. You mentioned Kadarius Tony. Some of the uh, direct snaps by Isaiah Pacheco have taken some years off my life, but one of them worked and one of them really, really didn't back in the Raiders game earlier this year. But the, the horizontal motion is so, is so intrinsic to the Andy Reid offense that you at least want to have the motion there. I also would love for Isaiah Pacheco to just get three boring carries at the goal line every single time down there until defenses start to stop it because it's been very hard to stop, but you've stopped themselves in that position all the time. Yeah, it's like he's a beautiful genius. He just outsmarts himself, and it's like, i got to come up with something. I, I'm, I'm doing this because I'm being graded by the judges, and I can't just stick to landing. i got to have something with artistic imp- imp- expression the offense and the ability just to give it to Pacheco three times in a row might change if Joe Tooney isn't able to play and you think pectoral injury offensive lineman like I don't know if that heals in seven days what have you heard and what have you made of what might be the contingency if Tooney is is not healthy enough to play or plays but is 
seriously compromised. Yeah, it's crazy because he just doesn't miss games. He's been one of the most durable players in the NFL during his time in the NFL. And now at this moment, you're wondering if he's going to be out there. Uh, it was good initial news with it being a strain and not a tear. But to your point, I mean, you're, you're thinking about bench-pressing defensive linemen coming to consume your quarterback. That is a very difficult thing to fight through. Again, Joe Tooney played with a broken hand. I mean, he, he will be the type of guy to test that. But if he is, you know, unable to go or, or is a significantly worse player trying to fight through that, it'll be Nick Allegretti will be the next guy stepping in. Uh, I've maintained for a while that Nick Allegretti would be a starting guard on most teams in the NFL. Uh, he's been happened to be this team's third guard these last couple of years and, you know, backup center as well, I guess. But he, he really is a very solid player. I do think that he'd be able to hold his own there. But the Chiefs paid Joe Tooney a ton of money because he is an elite blue chip player. Like he really is one of the best guards in football. I think Allegretti would keep the offense moving just fine, but I do wonder if they'd have to change some things. I imagine they would believe they'd have to change some things just because, again, they, they, they justify the investment in Joe Tooney a few years back because of what you think he can do without any help, what he can do as a communicator, as a technician like he is. But I, I don't think Allegretti will be one of those linemen that you see sometimes just get picked on in a playoff game. I, I don't think he'll be a weak link that brings down the whole offense or anything like that. I be remiss if I, I didn't really mention the defense and, and anchor the conversation around the defense because although it might not be the strongest Chiefs team Mahomes has had, it certainly is the strongest defense. But that strength will be tested due to injury right in the yeah. middle of, of that defense. You know, at safety and linebacker, two positions where they do have some depth, but you don't want to test that depth at this time of year. What will the two deep, look like do you think defensively given you know a couple guys got banged up yeah i think you're dead on they, they do have depth of those spots but again like you said it's a rough time for it to be tested so at let's start at safety they lost brian cook the excellent second year player uh towards the back third of the regular season and he, he won't be back so he'd had a, an excellent year back there alongside Justin Reed. Well, Cook goes out, and then Mike Edwards, the third safety they signed in the offseason, he spent the previous few years in Tampa Bay. He really had a very, very good year being the third safety and then held his own as the second guy we had to step in for Cook. Then rookie Shamari Connor uh, had to be the third safety and kind of a Swiss Army knife of a player who I really like, but he's a rookie in a tough spot there. Well, he played really well as a third safety, and then Mike Edwards gets hurt at the very beginning of that Bills game, and, and I don't know where he's going to be in the concussion protocol. Obviously, that's a very touchy kind of thing to evaluate. Either he might be great to go by Sunday, or he may have setbacks on Wednesday that totally rule him out by then. But e either way, that group has gotten thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner and if you're talking about Justin Reed and Shamari Connor and then maybe Dion Bush, who was on the team last year, but they wanted him to, to, to kind of take a step back this season, that is a tough spot to be tested against Lamar Jackson, even more so with Willie Gay Jr. Uh, again, the linebacking group, I think Drew Tranquil and Nick Bolton are this team's best two linebackers and, and certainly the ones that you can trust the most in the middle there. But Willie Gay is so athletic. He is so fast. He would be such a good matchup to have uh, as a, a counterpoint to Lamar Jackson. I think Lamar's going to win most of those matchups anyway because he's just a wizard back there. But what you could do with Willie Gay against Lamar Jackson is really exciting. 
you don't have him out there, they, they would have to then run with Leo Chanel, probably trying to do a little bit more in, in that super athletic, but Chanel's athleticism is way more uh, forwards than it is side to side, which of course you want in coverage and against Lamar. So yeah, I, I do think it's unfortunate for the Chiefs. These last couple of weeks against the Dolphins and Bills, they were going up against defenses that were dealing with, uh, with injury issues. And now the Chiefs are the side of the ball where, where those injury issues are giving me a little bit of pause. Now, that Willie Gay injury, because of the athleticism that you mentioned, to me, looms large because of the potential of having a spy against Lamar Jackson. Different minds look at the spy differently, and some people think, well, if you're spying Lamar Jackson with someone who's not as athletic as Lamar Jackson, you're just kind of wasting a defender. But even just mentally knowing that there's someone there you know, looking at you, waiting for you to pull it down and, and run, you know, can play on a quarterback. How do you think... Steve Spagnola will approach Lamar Jackson, given that the Ravens are coming off a game where D'Amico Ryans and the Texans said, well, like, let's just die a quick death and blitz all the time. And mm-hmm. it's almost like they're, they got a scout team of what they might see uh, in the Chiefs defense. Yeah, I think the first thing with Spags is that he's going to try to give Lamar Jackson enough looks and enough differentiation that it never gets easy to guess what's going to be happening. And I think that works with the spy conversation, too. Sometimes there needs to be that threat of, like, I need to make sure that I have a chance to run here. Am I going to get kind of left one-on-one? Which, again, Lamar's going to win one-on-one matchups in open space pretty frequently. So that's not exactly a, you know, a golden ticket to success. But being able to show varied looks, both in the back end and in the defensive line and in the way they try to contain Lamar and in the fact that this is not, you know, the pre-draft Lamar Jackson sort of tropes of, you know, keep him in the pocket, you'll, you'll win this game by, by 20. We're not in that spot anymore at all. So I, I think a varied approach for Spags is going to be a big deal. But you mentioning what the Texans did, I think it's fascinating, trying to heat Lamar up a little bit. If you can keep him in the pocket and speed that process up, he's still going to have a great chance to get rid of the football, to find Dave Flowers, Edel Beckham, maybe they get uh, Mark Andrews back. But I, I think quickness in that processing is going to be something that Spags looks for. Again, it's not that Lamar isn't processing like the guys they've been playing, but that's been the strategy the entire postseason for Tua Tungvaluwa. Get him off rhythm, speed him up, and, and throw off that, that whole offense. For Josh Allen, show him different stuff freak them out, make them double clutch, or they sped everything up that Bills offense. That became very horizontal. They were getting the ball out quickly. So, again, I think the Ravens are still a better matchup for the Chiefs, even if they do have to speed it up, go horizontal, make it a yak game for them. But the Chiefs secondary has very, very good tacklers, in, in addition to just being a very good coverage group uh, with Legereus Sneed and Trent McDuffie being the stars of that. So I, I really think it's going to be fascinating to see where exactly Spags kind of goes back to the most but I think you'll see a very high-variance approach from him for sure. Yeah, which is why I think this is a George Karloftis, uh, Chris Jones game. When you look at the last time the Chiefs lost a playoff game in the AFC, there was a couple key moments where could have got off the field if you brought Joe Burrow down, weren't able to, extended drives, extended plays. I, I, I wonder, you know, if that that front four, you know, is maybe the most important unit in this game. But when you, when you look across this defense, they're so young. Like, in some ways, yeah. they're ahead of schedule. People are going to have, you know, Patrick Mahomes in the promo video and on the marquee, but is the defense the real indicator on how far this team might be able to go? Yeah, it's really interesting, especially if you take a step back to last year. You talk about being ahead of schedule. I mean, they trade Tyreek Hill and they bring in MBS and Juju Smith Schuster, but I mean, obviously, you've, you've lost your 
your incredible downfield playmaker in Hill, who continues to be great in Miami. But then that team uses those draft picks and a couple of those, those moves they could make with a little salary cap flexibility, and they win the Super Bowl last year with an even younger defense in a lot of ways. And now this year, it's still a very, very young defense but it's a very, very young defense that has now spent a full season together for most of them. And, you know, Shamari Connor is still a rookie. But that, that rookie class uh, of, of those guys last year, all those rookie defensive backs that played in the playoff run, they've all now got a full extra offseason together. They had a full year in the system. So I, I really do think, yes, absolutely. It is a tremendous indicator of the health of the roster on that side of the football and the coaching staff. Spags has been great. Uh, the assistant coaches, I could name off half a dozen of them, who I think have, have really made an impact over these last few years here. But the, the issue is that when you don't have the offense humming the way you're familiar with, that is, of course, a concern. That is, of course, distracting. But I think you're right that the, the defense's success is really a testament to where this team is. We do have to talk about Mahomes, though. And I remember in that legendary 13-second game, uh, against the Bills, post game, Andy Reid said to the media when asked, "What do you tell you know Patrick Holmes uh, when things are grim?" And he's like, "Well, I told him when things are grim, be the Grim Reaper." And I, and I almost like as much as obviously you want to play at home, I almost feel like Mahomes is the type of person who will relish being a road underdog in the playoffs, going up against another marquee quarterback, you know, who will be a, a multiple. MVP, right? The, the the games that are going to be chapters in the last dance doc for this Chiefs mm. era in the future. I, I feel like he's cognizant uh, of these moments. You, you've obviously been around him and the team. You know, what do you think his mentality is going to be like going into a big spot against a number one seed? I think he is a guy who's aware of things like legacy. I, I think that's partially just him being like a big sports dork that really starts with, with his dad, you know, being a major league baseball player and all of that. There really is something there. Where he, he is very aware of all of that. And I think it's been a little bit of fuel with that Bills game being the first road playoff game he'd ever played, which is crazy because, again, we're talking about six years to AFC championship games in his six years as a starter, which means, as you alluded to earlier, five of those years it was at home at Arrowhead. So I think this run for Mahomes, what it offers to him is a chance to get back to the Super Bowl with the hardest road possible. You, you get the Tyree Killer revenge game at Arrowhead. You get uh, through Josh Allen in Buffalo and then a chance to go to Baltimore when, when the Ravens are the best team in the AFC this year. Lamar Jackson is going to be the second time MVP win that again this year. But you can go to the MVP's house and take that game from the best team by being the best quarterback in football. I really think that's the story that Mahomes has in front of him here. It's not a one-man game. I know that. You know that. We've talked about everybody but Mahomes first, and I think that's smart because, again, this is this is going to end up being a story about what this Chiefs team looks like. But seeing Mahomes in that mode again against Buffalo, seeing the path in front of him, and then an opportunity to either go, you know, knock off the Niners who are a juggernaut all year long, or maybe the Cinderella Lions in the Super Bowl. Now we're way ahead of ourselves, but no matter what, I think the path ahead of him again is, is something he's very cognizant of, and he's doing it against the, the, the best of the best that aren't him, which is an alarming thing to when you zoom out and look at, like, the, the quarterback conversation in the NFL right now. You have people recalibrating their thoughts on Josh Allen and Joe Burrow and, and the guys that, that Mahomes has gotten past and has kept at arm's length. I mean, Burrow has more success than, than Allen does, obviously. But all of these guys all get measured against Mahomes. 
And I also would just sort of guess at this point between Lamar Jackson, Joe Burrow, Josh Allen, not even getting to like, oh man, CJ Stroud looks really good. And some of the other quarterbacks in this conference, at least one of those quarterbacks is never going to win a Super Bowl between, between Allen, Lamar, and Burrow. They, there just aren't enough years for them to do that unless they do it back-to-back-to-back seasons pretty soon. Like, that's going to be the cost of playing at the same time as Mahomes, which I really do think has – and it's overused, but I think it has a real Jordan or LeBron characteristic to it in terms of like, oh, no, that's just the boogeyman and, and what he does for other teams, even other great, great quarterbacks in this league. He ends up dwarfing them. Yeah, I was actually thinking that when I watched Josh Allen walk off the field, I was thinking, is this our era's Patrick Ewan, Carl Malone? Yeah. Like, pick your person, someone who said, yeah, we get it. Charles Barkley was a great player, Hall of Famer, but he just happened to be born in the same time as, you know, a baby goat, a goat in training. I do think, though, you know, it's interesting because, you know, having said that, the Chiefs are you know, defending champs, but they're – Road underdogs and I, from the outside looking in, it's like, well, they're playing with house money. If they win, you know, the, the Chiefs are the Chiefs. They're back. And if they lose, well, you know, they they ran into a number one seed. Can't imagine how they did this with, you know, uh, a, a makeshift uh, playmaker group on offense. But I'm sure that's not the way the mentality is in market where you want to maximize the window of a player like Mahomes in his prime. What are the feelings and expectations in Kansas City, in Missouri? I do think there's a little bit of, of not quite house money here, but like beating the Bills in Buffalo and keeping that AFC championship streak alive, that, as crazy as it is, I think that is kind of like the the almost minimum standard right now, which is, again, like outrageous because – uh, the Chiefs had not played in an AFC championship game in my lifetime until Patrick Mahomes got to town. So, again, that's the standard now. But I think losing to the Dolphins would have been a disaster. Losing to Buffalo would have been disappointing. Losing in Baltimore would be a bummer, but it would it would be a logical conclusion to what this season has been. And, again, the Ravens are a really good team. I thought last week the wrong team was favored. The Bills were favored at home. I don't think the wrong team is favored in Baltimore. But that also doesn't mean that anybody here is writing the Chiefs off. Like, this is a chance, like we just talked about, for Mahomes to pull off an upset on the road in an AFC championship game. And everyone here wants that, and everyone knows, obviously, that that's very much within the realm of possibility. So losing and having your season end before you want it to end is always going to be uh, disappointing, obviously. But the success this team has had, the struggles we saw this season, and getting to this point, I think from right now, this 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 result is at the end of a of a somewhat successful season. Again, the process is frustrating, but this result is like acceptable. I also don't think that's going to make anybody feel better on Sunday night or Monday morning if they do lose in Baltimore and no one, no one, no one in that Chiefs locker room feels like they've accomplished anything at this point. I'm, I'm certain of that. I don't care what the spread is. I'm not betting against Patrick Holmes and the Chiefs in the playoffs. I just have Rudy Tomjanovich's voice in my head. Don't you ever underestimate the heart of a champion, I believe was the exact quote. Uh, I won't be doing that. I'll be fascinated to see how it plays out and looking forward to your coverage. Enjoy it, and thanks for the time. Anytime, man. Hope we get to do this again just for the next six years as well. It's always going to talk to you and always going to talk about a championship game.
Thanks again to Joshua Briscoe. You can give him a follow at JB Briscoe on X. For once I said X and not Twitter. Uh, great analysis, pregame, postgame, during the game. So if you're a Chiefs fan or just a football fan, give him a follow. Same is true for Kyle Goon. And it's funny, some of the exact descriptions and adjectives that Josh was using talking about this Chiefs run, which is, I think, in dynasty territory, you could apply to this Ravens run. They just haven't been able to finish the year with three or four wins and a championship while Lamar Jackson has been the QB. Is this the year? Number one seed, game at home, relatively healthy. We shall see. Let's ask Kyle Goon, who's a sports columnist for the Baltimore Banner, covers all things Maryland sports, Orioles, but does a real great job with the Ravens and is a local resident. Does it feel different in the D.C., Maryland, Baltimore area? Let's find out from Kyle on this Ravens run. I'm going deep. So, Kyle, this is foreign territory for a certain extent. The Ravens, for the first time, are hosting an AFC championship game, which is Somewhat odd considering that the franchise has been so good for so long and won multiple Super Bowls. What's the vibe like in, you know, the Baltimore, you know, Maryland area? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, very <laughs> exciting. Um, you know, as you mentioned, this is the first AFC championship to be hosted in Baltimore since 1971. Uh, and, and folks are just really excited about it. And, um you know, I think there's a, just a strong belief to this kind of year. Lamar Jackson kind of has matured. The defense has been the NFL's best. Um, you know, they're having events all over town um, with with the, what they call the Purple Caravan. And so tomorrow I think everyone uh, with, the, with the Ravens jersey is going to be wearing it to work in the city of Baltimore and the surrounding area. And, uh, you know, on, on Sunday itself they're going to have Ray Lewis, Ed Reed, Jonathan Ogden, Terrell Suggs, Anquan Bolden, um, Michael Phelps is going to be here. Um, T Payne is going to perform at halftime, and it just feels like a big blowout event from a Baltimore perspective. Awesome! What a difference a year makes. Where last year at this time, the conversation was around Lamar Jackson's contract and whether or not he should have been with the team on the road in the playoffs and what that looks like. And if, you know, coach Harbaugh should be on the hot seat. Now coach Harbaugh is, you know, leading the dance in the locker room, showing off his dad moves. Can you just put what's going on now in perspective by giving us the perspective on how different things were at this time in the franchise last year? Well, I have to admit, uh, I've had this job in less than a year, but, you know, I've, I'm from this area. I'm from the Baltimore area. I've been, you know, a long-time watcher of the Ravens. Um, and I can tell you from people who were here, the vibes were bad. <laughs> the vibes were quite bad. I mean, Lamar Jackson did not play in the playoff game. There were some questions as to whether or not he was healthy enough to play in the playoff game. Some Some fans were skeptical that his injury was lingering. Um, ahead of a contract year, um, and then of course by March, even there was a there was a public trade request that Lamar made uh, out on social media, and that's almost forgotten. It's almost swept on the rug at this point. 
because, um, you know, the Ravens came back, were able to agree to terms with Lamar. Um, they added Odell Beckham. They added Zay Flowers, his first-round pick. Both have been, you know, pretty dynamic at times. And um, it, it just kind of got swept under. <laughs> and uh, it's crazy. I mean, you know, you mentioned about John Harbaugh. He's now going to be the, the second longest tenured coach in one market um, in the NFL, right behind Mike Tomlin. So, it, you know, you just kind of see some of the old guard fall away and Bill Belichick and Pete Carroll, and suddenly John Harbaugh's right at the top. When you look at Lamar and the year he's had, the MVP trophy that he's inevitably uh, going to win, has there been steps that he's taken or – has it just been the influx and in talent around him and the framework of what you know Todd Munkin's system has allowed him to do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit of all. I mean, I think, you know, certainly he's grown a lot since his last MVP season um, in 2019. Um, you know, fewer touchdowns, but way more yards, way more attempts, um, just way more trust, which kind of builds into what you're talking about, about Todd Munkin coming in and, just creating an atmosphere where the Ravens trust Lamar Jackson to throw the ball. And it just didn't really exist as much under Greg Roman. Um, you know, just a lot of formations that were very tight, a lot of power formations, um, not a lot of receivers out on the field. And I mean, the Ravens didn't have a lot of good receivers, which is why the Beckham and flower signings were so important this off season. So they've given him more weapons, they've given him more trust and, and he's responded to the challenge. He's, um, throwing better than he ever has against the Blitz. He's throwing outside the numbers more. Um, his his average yards per attempt is up to a career high. His completion percentage is up to a career high. Um, he's just kind of proven that, you know, if you give him stuff, he's going to be more successful, which I don't know that the old offensive administration was ever really sure about. Mar certainly is the face of the team, but the identity of the team now and historically, I would argue, is the defense. You mentioned some of those great defensive names that are going to be back in the building. This defense won the Triple Crown. All of the defensive statistics that matter, they were one in. How does this group compare to the championship groups uh, that have preceded them? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I wrote this earlier this season, you know, the, those old defenses, um, they were kind of manifestations of the great, great stars. It was like, hey, Ray Lewis is on my team. I better act up. Ed Reed is on my team. I better act up. Um, and they kind of, those those great stars um, really willed <laughs> the defense in a lot of ways to, to kind of shape up and be elite every year. And I don't think this defense is exactly that. I mean, Roquan Smith is a great player. Um, you know, I would not yet put him on the same tier as Ray Lewis or Ed Reed. Um, and he's a willful player. But I think in this case, scheme has played such a huge part. I mean, Mike McDonald is the defense coordinator. You're, you're hearing a lot about him um, uh, interviewing for head coaching roles all over the NFL. Um, and this is why. I mean, they've as you mentioned, led the NFL in turnovers or, and, uh, or sorry, takeaways, um, led the NFL in sacks, led the NFL in scoring defense. It's just never been done in the modern league. And they're very good at um, disguising. They're very good at bringing pressure with just four rushers. 
Um, they're just good at kind of everything, um, you know, and I think the scheme has really helped this defense be more than the sum of its parts. Defense has always been the core identity of the Ravens. That's not true of the Chiefs, but they get into this game with the defense being the strength of their team. When you look at the challenge for the Ravens offensively, I wonder if you believe that what they saw against the Texans is almost like a scout team of what they might see against Steve Spagnuolo in the amount of blitzing that D'Amico Ryans and the Texans did. Much was made about the fact that Lamar Jackson raised his voice at halftime. I thought the real change in halftime was how they handled the blitz. How do you foresee that playing out in this matchup against the Chiefs defense? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's going to matter again. I think the more critical part um, for the Ravens is um, can they run the ball? And you kind of saw the Bills. I mean, Josh Allen is a great sort of uh, where Lamar is more of an elusive runner. Josh Allen is more of a bruising runner, right? But Josh Allen and the Bills had some pretty good success running the ball, especially in the first half. Um, so I think the Ravens are always, even though they're throwing more this season, they're always looking to establish the run, right? And, you know, they rolled up. The, the Texas defense ended the season uh, with the highest, uh, or the best grade in, in run defense DVOA. And they kind of blew them apart in the second half. So I think, Dictating the run will be very key to what the Ravens are doing uh, on Sunday against the Chiefs. And, you know, you got Chris Jones up front. Um, but they have some injuries at linebacker. Um, they have um, some some definitely guys that they're, they would probably like to have on that defense, even though it's truly one of the best defenses in the NFL. Um, I don't know if they're quite as variable and deep as the Ravens right now. I don't know if anybody is as variable and as deep as the Ravens, even at full strength. It'll be real fun to watch that fan base enjoy a home AFC championship game uh, this weekend and potentially see Ravens flock take over Las Vegas uh, in a couple weeks. Enjoy the game and we'll be watching your coverage. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much to Kyle. And again, you can find his work at the Baltimore banner. Give him a follow at Kyle Goon, G-O-O-N, is his handle on X. Okay, now we've got a handle of the AFC. Let's turn our attention to the NFC. And really, the conversation for me is all about the Lions, the darling of the season and the postseason. Remember, it is not long ago that the Lions started the season hosting the Kansas City Chiefs, the defending champs. That's how much respect they got from the league to start the year, and they have lived up to it. Can they live up to the billing on the road against the Niners? We find out after this break. The Lions are going to San Francisco with a trip to the Super Bowl on the line. It was extremely emotional to begin with. I did try to hold back tears. It's funny to cry over a football game, but... It was more than that. It's a memory I will never forget the rest of my life. It was surreal. That's what it was. There was a lot of love in the stadium. That's what it means to those fans. That's what this is all about. Detroit advanced to the first NFC Championship game since 1991. Do you know how long ago 1991 is? Terminator 2, Judgment Day, 
was the highest grossing film. I'll be back. Now the Lions are on the marquee. They were forever the ugly duckling of a proud sports town. The Red Wings have won the most Stanley Cup championships of any American NHL franchise. It's called Hockey Town for a reason. The Tigers are the champions of 1984. The Tigers have four World Series titles to their name. You recognize that Collins Old English regular font, capital D, on site. The Pistons have won the World Championship. The Pistons have three rings, won by two iconic teams and a signature call and response. Detroit Basketball! The Lions have been known for losing. And the O in Motown officially stands for O in 16. They have a couple Hall of Famers who are outliers. Amidst the function, they've had generational players who took their talents home and retired in their prime because playing for the Lions was so dark. If you are a Detroit Lions fan, you are passionate, but you know all about frustration. Being a kid, just having, you know, your, your hopes crushed as many times as I did, it stunk, you know. But now it's a brighter day, and those fences have been mended. They're back in the building alongside Detroit's proudest sons and their eldest statesmen, all thinking this year might be the one. I kept saying, you know, this is the year, and I say it every year. That's a common theme for Lions fans, right? We were thinking just of winning a playoff game. But they're good enough, it's possible that they could go all the way to the Super Bowl. All grit is not just a hashtag or a slogan for a fitted cap, it fits the team that reflects the city. It's a town known for having hard times and bouncing back because of hard people with warm hearts. They have figured out a way to make it work in Detroit, Michigan. The college team in state did it, and now the pro team is channeling Usher's music. Detroit, this is your moment. I am so excited, I can't believe it. I mean, I've been waiting for this for a long, long time. Windsor, Chatham, the entire state of Michigan. Stand up. You waited too long not to enjoy every minute of it. You deserve this because you made this with equal parts love and grace. 100% not the same old Lions. And that's what it means to Lions fans. That was my essay on this moment for the entire state of Michigan, city of Detroit, Windsor-Chatham area, if you're a Canadian Lions fan. If you want to watch that essay, feel free to go to sportsnet.ca because the visuals help bring that story to life. But you could hear the passion of those fans. So you heard my viewpoint on this moment for the Lions. But let's actually go a little bit deeper on going deep. Let's go directly to someone who is on the ground right now. He's a writer for 538, but a longtime Lions fan as well. Ty Schulter is joining us to talk about this moment in Detroit Lions history. So, Ty, the Lions have quickly become... North America's team in not just the U.S., but in Canada. Obviously, they've had a huge falling in Windsor and Chatham for a long time, but they've become the lovable Lions. But what's it like in the state of Michigan, in the city of Detroit? What's this ride been like? Uh, it's incredible. You know, people over the last 
couple of years have started to, to warm back up uh, to the Lions. You start to see some of that Lions gear broken out, lots of new Lions gear. They can't keep it on the shelves during this ride. You know, really last half of last year, people started to think, okay, maybe this team really does have something special. Uh, but going to the playoffs, winning in the playoffs, it's it's truly a special moment. And, and you, know, you saw, if you're watching on TV, fans crying in the stands and, and posting Teary videos to social media and all those sorts of things. Winning that playoff game was in a lot of ways like a Super Bowl, um, just the second playoff win since 1957. Uh, it's, it's been such a long time coming. And, you know, Detroit went by hockey town for a long time, but I think everybody knew deep, deep down it's a football town and it's a Lions town. Uh, and there's a, just so many people, so many feelings coming out for this, a ton of pride in this team. And I think, you know, obviously, it's there for the taking. They really didn't climb the mountain by winning one playoff game. <laughs> There's another couple bigger, taller mountains right there. Um, but I think a lot of people are just kind of delirious and happy to be here right now. Uh, they're, they're a little ahead of the game in terms of, you know, how long you think it would take to, to build from where they were to where they are now. Um, so there's kind of this sense of, of playing of house money. You pass this game this weekend, and I think uh, and you're going to get two weeks to marinate on it. Some of that unbridled joy is going to turn into a little bit of fear because uh, nobody my age, I'm 42, has has lived to see this before. Yeah, I was cheering for a Bills-Lions Super Bowl. Just yeah. two struggling yeah. fan bases taking over Las Vegas. Uh, what else could you ask for? Obviously, the Bills didn't get that done when they had you know, wide right 2.0, I suppose. Yeah. But in, in the story that I did for sports that I kind of said the Lions haven't even really had the missed field goal or the fumble, the drive. They haven't really been close enough to be relevant enough to have heartbreak. Yeah. It seems like though this program is ahead of schedule on the outside looking in. What are the prospects in terms of some sustained success moving forward? Yeah. And that's, you know, I was uh, nine when the Lions last won a playoff game, won the division in 1991, hosted the Dallas Cowboys, and national media was kind of saying, you know, these two teams are going to be the two teams, that this is going to be the rivalry, Cowboys and Lions over the next few years, because they had a bunch of young pieces in place, Barry Sanders, those type guys. Um, obviously, that's not how it turned out for one of those two teams. The Cowboys went out to win a whole bunch of Super Bowls. Um, but there's a similar feeling now, and especially when you look at the core of this team, you know, the guys that are getting it done, Monra St. Brown, Panay Sewell, Aiden Hutchinson, uh, and you know, Frank Ragnow in the center. A lot of these guys are young. You know, Ragnow and, and Taylor Decker are, are really the two oldest ones. A huge chunk of this team is guys that Brad Holmes and Dan Campbell have drafted just in these last three draft classes. You know, we've got a mess of starters coming out of just this past draft class alone. Jameer Gibbs, obviously Sam Laporta at tight end makes the Pro Bowl. You know, a lot of these guys are young, 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 and locked up either on their rookie deals or certainly set to get big extensions and the Lions have a bunch of cap room. So you have to think this core stays together for at least the next two or three years, which is about as long as any core stays together in the NFL. So the expectation is, yeah, this is the opening of the window. And, you know, hey, maybe it's like, uh, you know, the 2010 Packers. Aaron Rodgers gets to a Super Bowl one year after taking over as starter and it opens up a window, and then that window is open for 15 years, and they never win a second one. 
I tell you, Lions fans would take that in a heartbeat if they put this together, win this Super Bowl, and then that's all that this core does for the next three, four, five years, and it kind of peters out. It, absolutely, uh, Lions fans right now would take that 100 times out of 100. Let's look at the upcoming matchup, which many Lions fans will be flocking to the Bay Area to be a part of. Uh, and for the first time in a while, they're going to see outdoor football. Jared Goff and Lions haven't played a true outdoor game on grass since November. Much has been made of his not home and road splits, but indoor and outdoor splits. Yeah. Is that a thing in terms of going from the conversation about Purdy and bad weather to Goff in any <laughs> weather? Is that a thing that will potentially be something to watch for in your mind? Yeah, it's something to be concerned about for sure. And Certainly, I think when you look at Jared Goff, there's kind of this good Jared Goff, bad Jared Goff idea where, you know, so much of what makes him good and, and, you know, borderline great is his mentality, how level he stays from week to week, game to game, um, year to year, no matter what's going on internally or externally with him. But also that level attitude doesn't always translate into like ice cold performance, right? There are games when he's clutch. There's games when he lights out, there's quarters, halves, months, even where he lights out. And then sometimes it goes bad and it kind of keeps spiraling and it keeps getting worse. And then he presses and that kind of thing. So, you know, if he goes out and, and throws a pick early, you know, flips out of his hand, ball sails on him, that kind of thing, that kind of thing can spiral. I think what the lion did uh, against Tampa Bay and I think what they're going to try and do again is lean on that running game because ultimately what they've got up front is a big physical advantage with Frank Ragnow and anchoring you know one of the best run blocking lines in the league Penny Sewell maybe the best run blocking tackle in the league and you just rely on David Montgomery and Jameer Gibbs to kind of eat up some yardage set up some play actions set up some draws and, and go and, and do what you do uh, and win those one-on-ones make it easy for them Certainly, if Brock Purdy and the 49ers offense plays the way they did last week, you know, especially if they don't have Debo Samuel to, to you know, keep track of, then you can go. We don't need to outscore. You're not worried about having to score 40 to win. You're going, let's keep this close. Let's keep this simple. Build Jared Goff's confidence. Build up those play actions and let him attack, let him attack downfield in the second, third, fourth quarter. I'm fascinated by this matchup because of the contrast in coaching styles and personalities. Uh, you have yeah. uh, Shanahan for San Francisco, who is uber aggressive on first and second down, essentially playing CFL football, trying to get a first down early, and then very <laughs> conservative on third down. And then you've got you know, the Lions, whether it's head coach Dan Campbell or offensive coordinator Ben Johnson, who feel like they're going to utilize all four downs in any part of of the field, <laughs> most points off of drives where they've converted fourth down in the league this year. Dan Campbell plays NFL football more aggressive than I play Madden in a, <laughs> in a big spot. Do you see him being any different? No, I mean, he's going to do what they do the way they got there. Right. And he was criticized for playing all the starters in the last game of the year, Sam Laporta gets a knee injury, uh, you're limited him and, and people are like, oh, come on, you know, and, but it can't say, you know, we're going to play to win. This is that aggressiveness, um, that mentality, that toughness, that's part of it. And, and you accept the potential downside along with the upside of getting a team that's all in, that's going to go all out and give it every single down, you know, having that aggression, having that physical 
um, intensity and not letting off goes with that mental aggression, right? And when you know you've got players like Sam LaPorta, like a Mona St. Brown, who are really sure-handed, you know, when you've got guys that can turn negative two into two and two into 20, like Jameer Gibbs and David Montgomery, then, you know, you feel more confident. And when you plan for fourth down, you know, it's not just, hey, I'm in a fourth down situation, should I go for it? It's, hey, I know on third down, it's third and seven, I don't need to get eight. I need to get five. I need to get four. You know, and then that makes it a manageable fourth and one, fourth two, fourth and three. Uh, so that kind of thing, when you're doing that to begin with, then you can incorporate it into that strategy and it makes a little, you know, it's not just throwing caution to the wind. And when I think this is something to watch for against San Francisco, you didn't see this against Tampa Bay, um, but really against the Rams. Uh, when Dan Campbell proceeds, he's got a talent gap, right? He's more risky with some of the actual trick plays, actual calls, you know, fake punts in your own territory, that kind of thing. Um, I think you might see some of that against San Francisco, uh, and you might see some of it early too. Uh, whether or not they're they're behind, he might just go all out. And I think if you go back and look at his first year, go to the Rams and face Matthew Stafford right off the bat, and they're basically calling a trick play. Every down, it was surprise onside kicks, it was flea flickers, it was fake punts, it was your pull out, all the stops, they're the kitchen sink. I don't think you're going to see that in San Francisco, especially if it's outdoors in bad weather, um, but you might see that early on as well. Just something to take them by surprise and see if you can get a big advantage early. Dan Campbell is who many people have the man crush on, but I think the real yeah. star in terms of building this grit identity with the team will be Brad Holmes. And basically not missing in the draft, whether it's Penny Sewell or Aiden Hutchinson or Brian Branch or Jameer Gibbs uh, or Amara St. Brown, or as you mentioned, uh, Sam Laporta. Talk to me about the roster build, not only in skill, but also personality type that you've seen under Holmes. Yeah, it's fascinating because he, like you said, it's almost like he doesn't miss. Not, not truly that he doesn't miss, but this is what happens you know, when you have an organization that's aligned in the way they evaluate players. They know what they're looking for in players. They know the personalities that they want. And there are different personality types, too. You know, a lot of these guys have very high intensity, um, but it's not just all gym rats and glass eaters. You know, a lot of these guys like to have fun. Um, C.J. Garner-Johnson brings a ton of swagger and quotes. You know, a lot of the other guys in that locker room are kind of yes, sir, no, sir, guys. They kind of have the Jared Goff, you know, that stoic mentality, never too high, never too low. And, you know, CJ Gardner-Johnson goes out there and just does the most ridiculous stuff and, and you know, gives the other team bulletin board material. You know, Baker Mayfield, he picks Baker Mayfield off on the first drive and passes the ball back to him, right? So there's they they look for guys who are going to fit in that locker room. They look for guys with physical traits that they need, look for a certain attitude at certain spots. And, um, you know, they coach and draft and scout and build the team like they are players, like they're playing. If you see any of the draft room camera uh, and almost any of their picks, when one of their guys falls to them, they put in that card, they are pumped they're fist pumping, they're high fiving, they're back slapping. You know, it's like they scored a touchdown when they turn in that card with that guy that they want. And so far, again, that the track record is unbelievable in terms of knowing where these guys go, knowing where they fit, and uh, uh, putting them in position to make them successful. Well, uh, maybe the biggest decision, and maybe it's not a real decision, 
uh, homes will have moving forward is what do you do exactly with uh, the contract of Jared Goff and where do you mm-hmm. go in terms of an extension, understanding he's loved by the city in the locker room, you know, but there are levels to what you pay uh, a starting QB in the league. How do you expect those conversations to go uh, to give them flexibility to continue to build around him in the future? Well, I'll tell you, <laughs> the, co- the topic of Jared Goff's contract has been, you know, kind of the number one thing in Lions world since the Matthew Stafford trade, you know, the contract that they assumed, are they going to extend him and try and kick some of that cap hit down the road? Are they going to try and extend him to keep him around? Are they going to draft somebody to replace him? He had three straight drafts with multiple first round picks. And every single one said, okay, here's where you draft the quarterback that's going to replace your bridge guy, Jared Goff. And it didn't happen. And he's still here. And, and he's, you know, his, his progression year to year, month to month, game to game, he's getting better and better. He's long since proven that he can play at a level good enough to take the Lions maybe all the way to the Super Bowl, but also, and he's a lot younger than you think he is too, right? So he's also shown that he's never going to be the Mahomes where every single week he's going to put up unbelievable numbers. He's going to be lights out. He's going to be able to elevate everybody around him with his play that you can let all your receivers go in an off season. It doesn't matter because Jared Goff's still going to throw for 300 yards every single game. He's not that guy. So there's something in between. We're going to reset the quarterback market with this, you know, huge, huge number fully guaranteed for five years. And eh, we'll give you another kick it down the road, two, three year extension. There's going to be something in between there. Um, and again, Lions are in great cap space, but they have to resign a bunch of these guys they drafted over the last couple of years. You know, Penny Sewell is going to have a massive deal. Aiden Hutchinson is going to have a massive deal, right? So got to come up to a number that works for everybody, but I don't think there's any doubt. There's certainly no doubt inside the locker room that Jared Goff is the guy that the players are playing for him. You know, you watch the interviews, um, you know, Frank Ragnow gets asked after the Buccaneers game, you know, you had a knee, you had surgery on and came back. You had a fractured throat, you came back. Um, you know, a wrist injury came back this year, you know, basically missing no time despite three or four injuries that would knock other people out for weeks. How do you do it? And he's like, hey, you know, when you play with guys you love, you you come back. And when you play with this guy, you know, points at Jared Goff, like I'd do anything for him, man. You know, they that that loyalty that they feel towards him in that room I wouldn't be surprised if the Lions commit more money in more years than most people outside the building are expecting. But again, it really doesn't make sense to try and give a, you know, eight, nine, 10 year mega deal um, to a guy that's this deep into his thirties and has, has proven that he's not going to be the guy that's going to win rolling out of bed, no matter what else is going on. Well, that my friend is what they call a champagne problem because it's not the conversation (laughs) you're having about Joey Harrington or Charlie Batch or Mike McMahon or Scott Mitchell, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But it's good that the Lions are in the conversation at this time of year. You'll be driving that conversation, and we certainly will be following it. Enjoy uh, the game because it's been a long time. Thank you so much for spending the time. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Thanks again to Ty Schalter. You can find him on Twitter at Ty Schalter, T-Y-S-C-H-A-L-T-E-R. And you can find his work at 538, where he's giving you great stuff on anything around data or analytics. And the cool thing about this point is you can throw all the data and analytics out of the window. Now they just get to line up and play. 
four teams that are four quarters away from the Super Bowl. It's going to be a fun doubleheader this weekend, and we will talk about it next week. Enjoy the games. Thanks for listening.